like I told you all last Sunday, uh, I had the opportunity to go down to Florida, down to Lithia, Florida, which is just south of Plant City. Uh, funny thing, we were in Plant City, and we went out to eat with, some, with my friend, and I saw an old man there wearing a Georgia Southern t-shirt and a Georgia Southern hat, uh, as I was wearing my Georgia Southern hat, and so that was uh, pretty cool. Um, Plant City looked a lot like, a lot like Statesboro, it was pretty neat. Anyways, we had, a, we had a great time, and I had the, the great joy of preaching in one of their services that they were having throughout the week uh, to celebrate their 100-year anniversary. So it was a 100-year anniversary, but also a revival, uh, and my, my best friend is the pastor there. Um, his name is, is Greg Williams. We've prayed for them and their family uh, several times and for their church several times, and I was so grateful to be able to go there, see them face to face, and tell them that they have brothers and sisters in Statesboro that are praying for them. Um, and that was, a, a, that was deeply honored and, 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 and truly grateful to be able to represent you all and, and the gospel and to, to preach to them. The message that I, that I preached to them was something that um, I, I think is very near and dear to, to my heart, and it has been an idea and thought that I have preached to you all, I think, uh, throughout the years, uh, and in particular when we had a couple times when we talked, when we preached on the church, um, and we had some, some sessions there where we talked about uh, the church, and one of the things that he was telling me about their church is being 100 years old, they're kind of entrenched in some tradition and, 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 uh, uh, and, and can feel very stagnant, even though they're even 100 years old, and it's an old country church that's right on the lines of like a bustling city. It's Tampa has like made its way to their, I mean, right to their doorstep. And, and they're in this transition of being this country church that still is also desiring to reach their, reach their community and share the gospel faithfully uh, to, their, to their community as well as holding a firm grip onto God's word. And so he asked me to preach a message about the, of the, the glory of God that is revealed in the church. And so from Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to go. So I, I'm going to preach to you all sort of, the same, sort of the same message again. You guys have heard this. Um, uh, however, I think it's, it's just a good reminder even for us this morning and by God's providence um, that we would be reminded of it once again. I know I've, I've said before that if, if you were to go and ask um, 10 different people from our area, if they could define the church, we would get almost 10 different answers. They would give you a lot of, not necessarily what the church is, but more or less what the church should do, right? What is the, they would give you more of the purpose of the church. And some would say that the church is just a place, is, is a place, right? It's a place where people gather on Sunday mornings for an hour or in our case longer, um, some would say that it's, it's just where Christians gather, where they meet. Others would say that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a place that, that is devoted to taking care of people, right? Taking care of the poor, feeding the poor, and, and such. Other would say that the church, is, church, the church worships God, right? Or the, the church is where the next generation is to grow up and to hear about spiritual matters and to build relationships with other Christians, the church is a place that, or a people that, of God's people that come together each week to love one another, to encourage one another, to lift one another up, and to serve, and to, and to pray for one another. A church is a, a group of people that believe in the same message, and then they take that message and they reach out to others, sharing the same message to them. Now these descriptions, and as as you know, we can come up with probably a myriad of others' definitions of what the church is or even the purpose of the, of the church. At least in every one of those, there is some partial truth because the church does do good for others, right? We, we encourage one another. We hope that when you come and gather with us that, that you are encouraged, that you are uplifted, not necessarily just by the preaching and by the um, and the teaching of God's word, certainly that is to be encouraging to us. But just the very presence of being, being able to gather with one another, that is encouraging, and that builds one another up. 
Does the church evangelize? Absolutely. We share the gospel. We want people to come to Christ and believe in Christ and repent of their sins. Do we disciple? Yes, I hope. I hope that you are being discipled. You're being discipled on Sunday mornings. You're being discipled, uh, Lord willing, Wednesday nights if you're able to come, or Thursday evenings as well, or just the discipleship that takes place in relationship that you have with one another. Now, Jesus tells us, or Jesus uses the word, excuse me, church, two times in Matthew's gospel. We've, we've talked extensively about those from Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. And essentially, if you boil it down, the church in the Greek means the assembly, the gathering, the, the, the called out gathered. So there's this ecclesia, right? There's the word kaleo that's built right in it, and it means to call out, and the rest of it means to gather. So the called out that gathered. And so when we take this biblical definition of what the church is, I think it's safe to say we can say it like this, that the church is those people who have been called out by God's grace and that regularly gather together, practice biblical church membership, and practice the ordinances together, and come together by God's grace to glorify him. Simple, yet I think effective in showing essentially what the church is. All right, and there, are, there are many good things that the church does, and we're going to talk about some of those uh, this morning, but what defines us as the church is not what we do, but what defines us is what God has done through us in Christ. And that is fundamentally important to know and to remember. Because then what we do is an outpouring of what God has already done in us. It is not what we do, but it is what God has done in us that draws us in union together. That, that calling out that brings us together and then brings us in union with him as the body of Christ. Already we can see that within our Within our definition, and what we are establishing, unpacking that already, we're, we're seeing that the church isn't a place. It's not one particular place. It's not, a, it's not a place. It's not a building, but the church is the people of God. The church is the people of God. And, and what that church we just, I went to and, and preached at, what they were celebrating... A hundred years, that's a long time. There was, there was one man, I met him, and he was 83 years old, and he has been in that church since day one for him, not for them. They've been there a hundred years, right? 83 years old, he was born, and his parents took him to that church. Born and raised, stayed there his whole life, 83 years. But still not the whole length of the, of the, the church. And I, and I told them that you're, what you're celebrating this week, a hundred years, is is not particularly this building, even though their building wasn't even 100 years old. It was still old. It was like 1956 or something like that. It, but what they are celebrating, 100 years of God's faithfulness to call out a particular people, and then how him, by his faithfulness, has established them and to keep them for that long. That's amazing. Now, this year, this October, October, end of October, which is October now, we're celebrating six years, quite a bit different than 100 years, yet we are celebrating the same thing. We're celebrating the same thing, that it's God's faithfulness, that he called us out and he has established us and, and he has placed us upon the foundation of his word. And so what's harder then so now that we have a working definition, what's harder then is what's the point? What, what does the church do? So out of this definition, what does the church do? And this is where Ephesians 3, I think, kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit for us to understand and to believe and to delight in. If you would look at Ephesians chapter 3. For some reason I'm in Galatians. Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 7. And we're going to read the rest of the chapter. Of this gospel, 
I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this is according, this was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence throughout or through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant to you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy and not inspired inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So did you catch in verse 10 particularly, and then later in verses 20 and 21, what is the point and the purpose of the church? What is, what is the point? When you look at verse 10, it, it tells us clearly that through the church. Now, Paul's certainly implying that he is speaking to the church universal, those who are Christians all around the world that make up the, the church, but Paul is writing this letter to a church, to the church in Ephesus, to the local church. And certainly then by application that we can say that through this church, through Sovereign Grace Church, through Crossroads Baptist Church down in Florida, that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And how does, how does God make the manifold wisdom of God known? Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of his word. How the gospel works and moves and stirs and changes and shapes the church is the manifold wisdom of God. It's the knowledge of these things that we hear from God's word that shapes us then is on display is the manifold wisdom of God. Then in verse 21, he tells us, he says, in this doxology, verse 21, to him, God, who is making his manifold wisdom known in his church, to him be glory, be glory in the church. And his glory is to be known, right? And his glory is to be known in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. 
I found it interesting when I read that and I was thinking about them. How many generations have come and passed in 100 years? And I told them, and I was showing them that there's this multi-generational thing you got going, and just like for us, that God in his infinite wisdom and glory has been showing through them, and now he's, he's showing it through us and throughout all generations in this church from day one until he comes back. Glory be to him. The eternal purposes of the church is that we reveal, we display, and I'll show you in just a minute, that we image the glory of God. We are showing the glory of God to the world. And to understand this, I'm going to show you, we're going to walk through the biblical narrative. We've done this before. But I want to pull a thread through because there's this idea that is showing us the eternal purposes of God didn't just start when Jesus talked about the church in Matthew 15, but this idea has been flowing throughout from the very beginning that God reveals his glory through his people. So in creation, Genesis 1, God made man in his image. He made man in his likeness. And he gave them dominion over the earth, over the fish, and over the sea, and over the birds, and the heavens, and the livestock, and over all the earth, and over the creeping things that creep in the earth. I have a, my own little a theory, not theory, my own little opinion about that verse, and that is, and just an implication of it, is that God has given us dominion over this earth, so that when I go into creation and people tell me that that's the bear's home, I go, no, this is my home. Now, the bear may get the best of me, but I have dominion. And this passage tells us how God created and why he created. He created man in his, in his image. And why he created man is so that man would image him, would display him, would display his, his likeness. And he put Adam and he put Eve in the garden. And there in the garden, Adam and Eve, though yet distinctly, uniquely created creatures, male and only female, there in the garden, they perfectly displayed and reflected the glory of God and the character of God. And the man was called to then exercise that image. To do what God did, have dominion over, to subdue as God had subdued creation in creation by, by creating and taking what was once in chaos and to bring it into order. Man was commanded to work and to put into order. And that is what you do in your jobs. You're taking chaos and you're putting it into order. It's what you do in your homes. It's what you do in your, your families. You're taking what was in disorder and you're putting it into order. Our chaos is pretty hard, though. <laughs> it's nonstop. And this is exactly what God does in Genesis 1 and 2. He lovingly brings into order which once was chaos. But the purpose and point of humanity, of all mankind, is that we were designed to image God. And then we, we were then commanded to represent God and to image him and to reflect his likeness and his character and his glory, to reflect what he is like and who he is. But as we, we go forward, we have to stop right there in chapter 3 of Genesis because there is the, the fall. Adam and Eve chose not to reflect God's image. They chose to do what, what they wanted Though they had run of the garden, they had each other. They had deep, intimate relationship with God. God told them not to eat of the one specific tree. Do not eat of this tree. And yet they did, and they chose to rebel against God. And because of that, it had two devastating consequences for mankind. It brought guilt and shame into the world. Guilt and shame as a result of breaking God's law. I certainly believe that each and every one of us on some level 
understand shame and understand guilt. Man is guilty before God as sinners. And the second thing that they brought in, tragically, was they brought the corruption to the nature of man. Meaning, the image that once was clear, the image that they once were, were, was bearing, right? The image that they had of, of imaging God to all of creation, which once was, was clear, like looking in your own mirror at home. Hopefully it's clear and it gives a, a good reflection of, of who you are, is, is now, because of this corruption, is now bent and, and distorted. It's not destroyed, but it's bent and it's, it's distorted. I've used this illustration before. It's like when you go to the fair, which is coming up in a couple weeks, I think, here. And it's like looking into those wonky mirrors on the, the little fun houses. Sometimes you walk up to them and you got a really big head and your feet are like this big. And you go to the next one and then your midsection is really huge and your head's really small. It's like that. Our image has been, has been completely distorted. And therefore, we bear this guilt before God and our corruption. We're no longer imaging clearly what he once made perfect. Yet man still bears that image. And yet now, because of sin, is bent and distorted. So as the, the, the biblical story goes, goes forward, we see how God calls a people to himself. and starts in Genesis Chapter 3, God calls Abraham. He calls Abraham to be his, the father of his nation, of his people. And he takes this, this guy, Abraham, who is honestly, like, like many of us, is just a bumbling guy, right? Makes mistakes. Does some weird things. And then his family eventually, as we've been talking in Exodus, becomes a nation. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to Exodus chapter 4. And after 400 years of slavery, God saves his people. He delivers them. He takes them, he takes them out. Well, it'll be later in Exodus. But this is what he says in Exodus 4. While he's at the burning bush, so we'll, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, he he tells Moses to say this to Pharaoh. This is what God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh. He says, then you shall say to Pharaoh. He says, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Why does God call Israel his son? Why would, why would God call Israel his son? Now, there's some, there's some really awesome biblical theology we, can, we certainly can, can, can look at, but I just want to boil it down really, really simple. Because what was the point of Israel? The point of Israel was to be God's people that images, that reflects the character of their God. And God wants, wants the world to know that his son is to follow in, their foot, in his footsteps. Is to follow in, in his footsteps and to look like their father. My kids, I know you all see my children often. You hear them more than that. And, and you'll notice that, that, they, that they all look different. I and mean, they do. They just look different. Uh, uniquely different. Some of them have more characteristics that look sort of the same and such. But if you looked at every single one of them in one way or another, they unfortunately look like me. Right? They do. In, in one way or another. Eva is tall and thin like me. Lydia's got a bigger head like me. And, and among other things, the, some of the good things and unfortunately some of the, the bad things. And what I'm also starting to, to notice is that my children are starting to pick up some of the things that I like, some of the things that I like to do, right? So they enjoy coming to the football games and some of the music that I like listening to and 
and some of the songs that I've enjoyed listening to, I hear Eva like is she's enjoying listening to and, and, and things like that. And see, God's in, intent was for his son, his firstborn son, to image and reflect their father. As we see that in our own families. We see how our children reflect us and image us. And this is how God is relating that to his people. And so shortly after he delivers them out of Israel, you, you know what he does. He gives them his law. He gives, him his, he gives them his word and he tells them that I am holy. And because I am holy, as your, as your father, you're my son. And as, my, as your father, I am holy. I want you to be holy. I want you to be separate from all other nations. He didn't save them and draw them out of Egypt just so they can go and, and, and be like the rest of the world, to go just be like Egypt was. No, they are to be a holy people that reflects and images the character of God. He warned them. He warned them too that if you fail to follow me, Right? And so this isn't just some dictate from some, some God that's out there, some oppressive God. This is, this is the God, Yahweh, who has delivered them and loved them and provided them. And if you guys remember a couple weeks ago, he remembered them. He remembered them that even in their position and place, he still led them out. He loved them. And yet they failed to live according to his law. And so God, as he once delivered them, brought them to the land, he exiles them. Because they did not passionately choose to love the Lord and follow him. But they passionately chose over and over again what was wicked and what was evil. So what they're doing is they were not reflecting, they were not imaging the character and glory of God but they were trying to reflect and image the world and the desires of their flesh. Well, fast-forwarding ahead now to, to, to Christ. In, in Luke chapter 3, the, the, the moment after Jesus was baptized, we know in verse 22 that it says that a Holy, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a, a form of a dove, and a voice came from heaven, and it says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So, so again, here we see the same word, son. But something now is completely different. In fact, it almost seems way more appropriate, doesn't it? That God looks upon Christ because Christ is his son. He is the son of God. He is not just, he's not Adam or he is he Israel, but Jesus is the son of God. The second part of the Trinity, God had become flesh. And because Jesus was the perfect representative of God, he was God's perfect son. No longer, as Jesus came in the flesh, no longer was the image bent or distorted. But it was perfectly clear. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 1 that he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint, image of his nature. Radiance, reflection, image of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. He was and is what Adam should have been. He is and was what Israel should have been. And when Jesus tells Philip, because Philip asked that to see the Father in John 14, 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So as God's perfect representative, Jesus came in the flesh and through his work, of the, work on the cross, he solved those two problems that were created in the fall. Guilt and corruption. 
Jesus was never corrupted by sin. Isn't that hard to fathom? He was never corrupted by sin, yet though he was tempted. He was never corrupted by sin, and therefore he had no guilt. And he was the perfect, sinless representative and son. He was the perfect, spotless sacrifice for our guilt. And he atoned for the wrath of God that we deserved. No longer do we, those who are in Christ, stand guilty. No longer do we stand condemned. No longer guilty. That's why we sing that song, not guilty anymore. He took away our guilt, and he died paying the penalty of our sin and taking care of that problem of guilt, no, no long, and that we are no longer slaves to that corruption and to those corrupt bodies and to those corrupt natures. Yes, we still exist in those corrupt natures, and we still feel the the, the, the temptations of sin, and we still feel the effects of sin and fallenness and the frailty of our physical bodies, but we're no longer subject to it. And now we come to the church. And since the cross, everyone who has been called out and has turned from their sins and has put their trust in Jesus Christ as their perfect representative and has been united in union with Jesus Christ, we are the church. And this tells us again, like I was telling you from the beginning, that the church is not a people who come by their own efforts. The church is not a, a people by, the, by their own efforts making themselves better or making other people better. That's not our, our point here. The point of my job is not to tell you what you are to do and what you are not to do. Don't play cards. Don't drink alcohol. Don't dance on Thursdays. Be a better person. No, it's to preach the gospel. And then God's word conforms you and changes you. Because we, are, we, we know, we come in here each week, we come in here already beaten and battered by sin. And we understand that sin has already separated us from God. But as Christians, right, Christians, we know from God's word that by his grace, he sent his son. And, and by his grace, again, he has granted us the faith to believe in Christ Jesus, that he is our savior and now we are living according to his grace. And so in Romans 8, he says this, Paul, Apostle Paul says, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, there's the kaleo, right, from Ecclesia, called according to his purpose. So it's, it's his purposes. It's the purposes of our Father, the one that we are to image and to reflect. It's, it's his purposes. It's not our purposes. It's not your purposes. It's not my purposes. It's, it's his purposes. And he has called us according to those purposes. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? to be conformed to the image of his son. Reflecting his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What a wonderful text for us to be reminded of the amazing 
manifold wisdom of God that he is accomplishing and revealing in the life of his church. What God has done and is continuing to do in us, brothers and sisters, is what he has been doing for all eternity. To conform his people into his image. That we may display his likeness and his character and his holiness and his goodness and his loving kindness and truth and his glory and his justice and righteousness to all the world. This is the point of our election. This is the point of our calling. This is the point of our justification and sanctification and glorification that we would reflect the likeness of our Savior so that those mirrors that were once distorted and wonky and and weird and marred and flawed and given over to sin are now being made clearer and clearer that we may image Christ. And we are being conformed to that image to display it. It is in Christ. It is through Christ. And so what does this look like? It looks like how Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. It looks like peacemakers. It looks like meekness. It looks like the one who hungers and thirsts not for food, but hungers and thirsts for the word of God. Food's good. You should eat. It looks like loving your enemies. There's a hard one. It looks like forgiving those who have offended you and forgiving those who have hurt you. All of these things God has shown to us in his character and nature. And he has shown us particularly particularly in his son that we are to reflect him. And he has been so kind that as his people, he has given us his Holy Spirit to indwell in us in order that we may do so, can do so. The church is meant to reflect what God is and what God is like to the world around us. And this brings us to the last place in the thread. It's a place that we are not even at yet, and that is in the consummation. That is in the eternity, in the new heavens and new earth and glory. And 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 shows us. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We can just stop right there and meditate on that, of the, the love of our Father. Notice the language, Father. Not just God, but Father, as, as Father. And the love that, this, that our Father has given to us, that he has called us to be his children. Very much reminiscent of Romans 8, that we are sons and no longer slaves. And as sons, he has given us his spirit, that we would cry out, Abba, Father. And he puts in this line here, the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, and so we are. Maybe there should be an explanation point. We are. He has done so. He has accomplished this. He says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. So not later, but but now, in this present, that if you're in Christ, you are 
God's child now. And then he gives us a glimpse of that glorification. And he says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. You see, already we are, we are reflecting him. We're to image him. But we also know, I, I think if you've been doing this for all, you understand that this is hard. Sometimes the Christian life is hard. There's, there's sin, there's, there's suffering, there's persecution, there's all these different things of, of life. There's, there's just getting tired, there's getting weary, there's these things, there's problems in relationships, these things, these things happen. And sometimes the mirror and the image that we are reflecting of Christ doesn't always look like Christ because the corruption in our nature and our sins and our weakness is still there. The flesh is still there and sometimes we can intentionally wonkify is that a word i don't know wonkify the mirror we can make it distorted again but we know right he says it here but what we know that when he appears when he comes back we will be like him Remember we talked about all the way in Genesis where Adam and Eve perfectly reflected a very clear, crystal clear image of Christ. That's what's coming, folks. That was an amen part. <laughs> no more. No more struggling with sin and sorrow and doubt. And fear. But when we see him, when we see him, we will perfectly reflect him. And we will, as his bride, as his bride, he is preparing us now to, to meet him. He will make us perfect in the consummation. So like now, like the the parable of the parable of the, the, the young brides that are waiting for the bridegroom to come through the city, keep that lamp full. Keep that light going. Because when he comes, our mirror and our image will be clear and as bright as the shining sun on a mirror. You ever seen a, the sun reflect on a mirror? Yeah. So there's the story of how God is uniquely creating this people for his glory. And now how it's being done in his church. And so we worship him as his church, displaying his likeness and to testify in word and action of God's great redemptive work. We preach the gospel, as Paul said in here in Ephesians 3, that he is preaching the gospel and he's making it known to them. And that's where we are now. And we will be there until he comes back. And then when he makes all things new, this is the purpose of the church. This is the purpose of our church. At six years old or a hundred years old, whoever is here and whoever is left, this will be our purpose if Christ tarries for another hundred years. We pray that. But if that's true, if these things are true, then what does it mean for us? Well, again, as being the displays of the manifold wisdom of God, we are the intent is for us to display his glory. We display his glory. So in Christ, you and I, we, we reflect the image of, of God in a way that we engage and do life and do things in this church. Everything we do is to display that. And so if, if, if you do not go to church, if you neglect gathering with the saints, if it's just a casual willy-nilly thing, you show up when you know, maybe when, I don't know, family's in town or Christmas or, or Easter or whatnot, then, then you're really not a part of the church. 
That's not being a part of the, of the church. Because at home, yeah, you have family there and you have people there that you, you love and that you're with, but it's in the church where, where we can get irritated and we can get offended. But if you're at home by yourself, there's no one you have to love or forgive but yourself. But if you stick around here long enough, guess what? Someone's going to offend you, and it'll probably be me. Because I'm the one who talks the most. Someone's going to offend you. Someone's going to make you upset, and so you stick around long enough, you're going to have to forgive. You're going to have to bear with someone. You're going to have to bear with them. You're going to have to love them and forgive them, even without telling them. You're going to have to serve, and you're going to have to love. Essentially, what you're doing is is you're going to be forced in the body of Christ. You're forced to apply the gospel to one another, and first in our own hearts. You're applying the gospel in your, your own hearts, or... If you neglect those things and you do not do those things, then 1 John 4.20 will be true, and that will be revealed of you, that if you do not love, the love of God is not in you. And yet when we are used in this life, when we are used, excuse me, in the life of the church, when we are part of the, the life of the church to the glory of God, we are displaying the characteristics and likeness of Christ to other people, and to one another, to people who just do not deserve it. We do not deserve it. I do not deserve to be forgiven, and yet we forgive because of grace. You do not deserve to be forgiven, but we forgive, and I forgive you, and vice versa, because of grace. That's displaying the image of the glory of God. And God intends, he uses how we do life together to display his likeness. Speak to some of our fellow church members who joined our church and have stuck around because they've seen how we do life, how we love one another, how we care for one another to the glory of God. And second, the church is to be distinct, right? Remember, God called this people to be distinct, to be be holy. You know, again, most of us, we're okay with being different from our world because our world is insane. The ideologies, the evil ideologies that's coming out and being propagated in our world is evil, insane, and wicked. There, there's no other way to say it. There, it it's, is what it is. Uh, I, I think it's, um, is it First John where he talks about the Antichrists? That's what we're seeing all around us. Little Antichrist. So we're okay with being different from them. Right? We're able, we're, we want to take the one step or five steps or 20 steps or 100 steps from them. But the difference is, is that where we have our problem is being distinct. Our distinction, right? And our, and our distinctiveness is what's going to make us countercultural. It's what's going to make us completely different than the world. You know, I like to, to remind you all of these things, but think about what we do on Sunday mornings. Think about what we do when we, when we gather on, on, on Sunday mornings. And some of you might even ask, uh, why do we do the things that we do? Why do they do that? Why do they do when they do the things? That, why do they do that? Well, everything that we do is intended, is intended for us to be, of course, God-glorifying and uplifting and encouraging one another but also to be countercultural. For example, in an, a very anti-authoritarian age, what are we doing? We come together and we submit ourselves to one another. Ephesians 3, no, 5, 521. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. We submit to one another. We sit and we, we listen to the, to the scriptures being 
proclaim and preach because the scriptures are our authority. You come and you submit yourself under our authority. Our world and our age, the spirit of our age is shallow. It's shallow. It's rootless. It has no roots to it. And in, 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 in that kind of age, we, we come here and we want to be unplugged from it. Right? That's kind of a catchy word. We want to be unplugged from it. We want to turn off our, our screens and we want to dig deeper into God's word. And we want to dig deeper into our, our past. People today are also afraid of earnestness. They're afraid of honesty. And they're terrified of silence. But as the church, we want to stand in a way that's distinct, that goes deeper. Meaning, meaning we're not afraid of honesty and earnestness. We want to tell the truth, but we want to tell the truth in, in love. We're not afraid of silence. We want to pray and we want to be reverent. We want to be connected with each other in honesty. We're not in a hurry. We're not limited by some amount of time to this well-choreographed event or a show or a program. We come prepared. Sometimes we have to pull audibles. But we come prepared. We have a, we have a liturgy, and our brothers know who's going to pray and what they're going to pray. But that's not what moves us. Our distinctiveness is the gospel. And so when we regularly gather and we sing and we pray together and we listen to the preaching of God's word together, we are living out the hope of the gospel together. We are collectively, corporately imaging the glory of God, reflecting his image, the manifold wisdom of God for his glory. And along those same lines as the church being distinctive, we must be distinctive for our mission, for our outreach, for our evangelism. Again, what's the, what is the whole point of inviting people to come to church or friends or lost people or, or sharing the gospel with them if, if you or the church is not distinct at all, if there's no distinctiveness of all, at all? And, and this is where, where many, quote-unquote, churches are failing because they have absolutely no distinctiveness, no distinctiveness at all. There's no saltiness to them. There's no taste to them at all. They're just, they're just like the world with a fancy building and a, and a maybe talented orator or music and musicians and things like that or technology or a whole lot of tradition, whatever it, it may be. What's the, what's the point? And if we allow open, unrepentant sin in our church, then we have no distinctive message. We might as well shut down this whole thing because we have nothing distinctive to offer. This is why we value the importance of, excuse me, biblical church membership and discipline and discipleship. This is why we have conversations with with visitors and guests who come, we want to invite them to become members of our church. We want them to join us and become a part of the body of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we walk in perfection, and we, are, we do not. We, are not. we are not perfect, but we do reflect the holiness and grace of the gospel. We reflect the one who is perfect and we follow him. And so in the continual proclamation of the gospel, in the rehearsal of the gospel, as the church, this is where we find life. This is where we find flourishing. Because we are created by the gospel. We have been called out by the word of, of God. The message of 
of we were once sinners and in God's love and Jesus's work on the cross and resurrection from the dead and our new life and forgiveness for all of those who repent and, and believe. This is distinctly what Christianity is and this is distinctly what we, what we live out and only the church can proclaim such a message. And without this gospel being in the, the forefront of not only our message but also our lives and how we do church and what we are imaging, then how are we to be different from the world? The continual proclamation of God's word and the rehearsal of God's word is where we find life. And so how do we do this? How do we display the glory of God? How do we display his likeness? Well, we've been saying it out. We've been saying it all morning. We first do so by being good listeners to God's word. In each of the places of the biblical narrative we walk through, all six of them, there is a fundamental element of God's word in each one of them. In creation, God created through his word. He spoke and the universe came into existence. God spoke to Adam and Eve and he, what did he do? He commanded them, instructed them what they were not supposed to do. This is how you worship me. And even then, man was dependent upon God's word. They needed God to, to speak to them. And this is what, what Paul unpacks for us in Romans 1. To, to know God in a saving way, we, we need his word. We don't need just creation or pictures or, or smells. We need his word and we need the proclamation of his word. In the fall, Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word. God called Israel by his word. He tells them how they are to act and how they are to reflect his image by his law, which means they gave him, they, he gave them his word. They rejected his word. And Jesus, the incarnate son of God, John chapter one tells us that he is the very word of God. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. And Jesus, when he came, he reflected the image of God, the eternal son, and he was perfectly obedient to the word of God. And by his word, he has made us his people. He has called us to be his church and his word is what is still shaping us today. And the Great Commission tells us to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching, 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 teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, to keep his word. Teach them my word. Proclaim to them my word and to be obedient to my word. John 15, or John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, my word. So we read, we study, we, we, we sing, and we listen to God's word so that we would know how to reflect and to image God's glory. And then in eternity and in heaven, in the heavens and new earth, brothers and sisters, there will never be a time that we will not be listening and hearing God's word. Displaying the image of God and obedience is listening to God's word. So then that is our goal. Our goal is to be centered on God's word and, and, and where and how we treat God's word is where the church rises and falls. Whether if, if Christ tarries, we would be around for a hundred years. It will rise and fall to how we fundamentally treat God's word. Clearly, music programs don't kill the church. You would be gone. Clearly. Sin does not kill churches. You would be gone because we sin. Sin can be forgiven. Sin can be repented of. Churches survive public sin if they repent and handle it according to God's word. Is it hard? Is it difficult? You better believe it. But what kills the church and what is killing churches is when it stops listening and being obedient to God's word. 
It's as simple as that. So success in the church, brothers and sisters, is not based upon buildings or the kind of building you have, the number of people in the seats or the kind of programs you have, but success according to God's word to image and reflect God is the church who listens to God's word. That's it. Again, this is why so many congregations, quote-unquote, have gone apostate. Because the measure of, obe- of, the measure of obedience to God's word, they have none. They have forsaken it. They have taken scissors to it. They don't believe it. They don't trust it. They preach against it. Here's what it says, but this is why it really doesn't say that. This is why everything we do is to be Bible-centered. This is why we preach through books of the Bible. This is why we read the Bible out loud in our services several times. This is why we put it before you when we are singing and when we are studying God's Word. This is why we pray God's Word. This is why we study God's Word. This is why we sing verses that are songs that are saturated with God's Word and biblical ideas and thoughts and theology. And so this is why, and we've been encouraging one another for years, that as a little church, this is what's good news for us, because all we need is not all the fancy things, but all we need is the Scripture, and to be faithful to the Scripture as God's people. The measure of our faithfulness as a church is only measured by God's Word. And we absolutely have a desire, brothers and sisters, to see more people come to Christ. We want to see people come to Christ through the ministry of the church. But our measure of success is not in numbers. But the measure of our success is faithfulness to the word of God. Again, it is is good for us as a church. It is good for us to have a good name in the community. It really is. You know, when people think of Sovereign Grace Church, they should think of good things. I think the Bible tells us that. We should be well thought of in our community. But that still is not the measure of our success. Because there may be a day, there there may be a day, because we hold firmly to God's word, because we firmly hold to the truth of God's word, and we say that some people cannot be members because they're unrepentant, they're, un-Christ- they're not Christian at all. They have no belief in the gospel. You, are not, you cannot be a member of this church. That very thing, because we have a firm grip of God's word, that may be the very thing that destroys our re- reputation in our community. Where we may be driven out. We may be canceled. We may be thrown out of our building because we're intolerant. And we may have to go pack the Brother Dick's backyard. But the measure of our success is not ultimately what our community thinks of us. Our measure of success is our obedience to God's word. There may be consequences to doing so. We may face these things and we must be ready to respond to those things appropriately and lovingly. But our success is only measured by God's word. I've shared with this quote with you guys many times. It's a good old classic Charles Spurgeon quote where he calls the church the dearest place on earth. This, this right here, not 471 Fair Road, I think that's what the address is, but this, the gathered church, you, the people, this is the dearest place on earth. And not because of me, not because I'm, I preach or because I'm your elder or your pastor, or not even because of, honestly, not even because of you. But this is the dearest place on earth because of the work of Christ in each and every one of us. And that by his grace, he has made us his people. That's why it's the dearest place on earth. And as the church, 
we then strive. We strive. We, we struggle. We move forward by his grace to display then and reflect the image of our Savior. And then this is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 3. And that through us and through our lives together, God is showing his manifold wisdom that it might be made known to the rulers and authority of heavenly places. Can you name another place on earth that does what we do? That forgives freely. And that loves this way. Can you pick one? Sure, you can pay people to do that for you. But it's not genuine. This is truly the dearest place on earth. And this is what we are doing. Week in and week out, as we gather, it's why we don't neglect or forsake the gathering. Because each of us apart, because of what God has done, we are imaging his glory and his grace to each one of us, who is holiness and love. We are growing more and more. And in that growth and in that work, he is doing it in us together with one another. We get, to, we get to be a part of it. We get to be the vessel. We get to be the tool, and we get to watch it. We get to see God work. So as we like to say, and I want to encourage you, to press in more to the church, to lean in more, not less, because this is where the manifold wisdom of God is displayed. I understand and know that everything in our lives is pressing against us right now. It's like walking into the wind, or it's like trying to walk out into the sea when the waves are bashing against you. But this is the dearest place on earth. The church is the gift of God to his people. It is his gift to you. This is the eternal purposes of God for you and through us as the church. And as his people, we are to reveal him in his image because, as he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people say,